Guys, you might recognize the name Jake Riley from the Olympic trials in the United States earlier this year because this bloke finished second behind the great man Galen Rupp in what was an incredible race to qualify for his first Olympics. He crossed the line in just over two hours and 10 minutes, I'm pretty sure. It was just a real feel-good story. I remember watching it and hearing a little bit about Jake, thinking, man, I'd love to talk to this guy about his story because it didn't just sound like everything came super easy to him. Uh, so I was lucky enough to get in touch with him a couple of weeks ago, organize a chance to sit down and talk all things running and specifically the marathon. Uh, I wanted to pick his brain about his, you know, not only his running training and how he structures his week. I wanted to ask him about his hydration plan and his diet and his recovery and everything else that goes into running a good marathon. So if you're a marathon runner or distance runner in general, just trying to get a few tips, this is a great one for you. Guys, are you a relaxed running member? Yes. You can get access to the full membership for 10 bucks US a month. That'll give you access to our Experts Corner Elite Insight video library. We've got um, Olympians, national champions, sports doctors, exercise physios. Um, sorry, that was exercise physios. Exercise physiologist is the word that I was going for there. We also have um, hydration experts and uh, strength, mobility videos. We've got some yoga videos coming soon. The list goes on. So if you want to jump on board and just have a one-stop shop for all things to improve your distance running, that's what we're trying to create over there. Got a great community. So we'd love to have you on board. That's relaxrunning.com slash join. Guys, as you might be aware, if you're listening to the podcast the last couple of weeks, Precision Hydration is the sponsor of this show. And I thought how appropriate that Precision Hydration sponsors an episode like this when we get into the importance of the hydration plan for a marathon. What I loved about Jake's approach was it's quite a simple approach to his hydration plan. And that sort of a, it almost complements the way that precision hydration go about this. Because once you've got the right product, it's easy to know when to implement that, how to implement that. And to have some expert guidance on how to do it is a really big step. So for any of you who don't know about precision hydration yet, these guys are about refining your hydration strategy. It's not just generic advice on, here, do this and you'll, or, or drink this amount each day and you'll, you'll run fine. They look at your specific style of sweat, which sounds so sexy to say, doesn't it? Your sweat type. And they look at what exactly you need in your sports drink in order to be able to make sure you're hydrated. So if you want to check that out, go to precisionhydration.com. Uh, if you want to catch up and have a free one-to-one video call with one of their sweat experts, you can do that by clicking the link in the show notes or simply by emailing hello at precisionhydration.com. The good news for you is you'll get 15% off your first purchase by using the coupon code RELAXED15. That's all in capitals, RELAXED15. Just enter that at checkout to get your discount. Anyway, that's enough from me. Enjoy this conversation with the great man from Boulder in Colorado, Jake Riley. Based at the moment, man, you're up in you're up in uh, in Boulder. Yeah, so I'm here in Boulder, Colorado, training with Lee Troop and Team Boulder. Um, but yeah, I'm originally from uh, Washington State, Bellingham. Far, yeah, far upper left. Beautiful, man. Yeah, I um I was so excited to find out that um uh, Troopy, or well, you were working with Troopy because I was following the marathon, the U.S. marathon trials. I think like a lot of people was probably where your name jumped out to them. 
and I thought, hang on a second, look at this bloody guy go, and I was I was rooting for you big time, man. And then uh, just having a look at some of the results and having a look at a little bit of your story, I thought, oh my gosh, he's coached by the great man Lee Troop himself, who I was at. I'm I'm 31. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm 33. But I was a massive fan of of Troopy when he was living over here in Australia. And I've always been a massive fan of his uh, his approach to training, his approach to running, his approach to life in general. So I thought, all right, I'm going to pick his brain about this bloke, Jake Riley, and then I'm going to see if I can maybe have a chat to you himself. So how long have you guys been working together for? I started working with Lee in November of 2017. So yeah, we just hit three years. Well, that's actually a little bit longer than I was expecting, but yeah, it's about three years. I mean, some of that was injury time where I had to take time off, but like he coached me back through that whole rehab, through the odd downtime. So yeah, three three years together. Gee, so what? When you first started with him, you were just coming back from an injury. Yeah, I mean, it was like my third time trying to come back. I was dealing with this Achilles problem continually, and so I was yeah, I was trying to rehab uh, my Achilles when I came out here. So I had just gotten up to like. 30 to 45 minutes of running a day. Uh, and then kind of in my first few months out here, we'd gotten up to just starting workouts and it flared up again and then took time off, got surgery on it and then coached back up to the rehab. Yeah. Okay. I remember Craig Mottram had a Achilles are nasty ones, aren't they sometimes? Cause I've got a couple of friends and I know Craig Mottram through his career struggled a fair bit with, with Achilles surgery and he was flying in and out of, I want to say Germany, but I don't know if I'm just making that up. To, to try and get it treated. But what was what was going on with yours? Uh, Haglund's deformity. So the little bone spur that flares up right behind the Achilles tendon. So you get chronic inflammation that leads to excess bone deposition. And you there's probably also some underlying physiological factors. But um, yeah, you get this little bit of bone. So it doesn't really matter how much soft tissue work you do on the Achilles, which is what I did for the first two years I had it. Uh, eventually that bone is just going to come back in and start rubbing those fibers. So it's kind of the, the de jure injury. So Galen Rupp had double Haglund's surgery, I think like six months after I did. Um, another guy who trains here in Boulder, Riley Masters just got it. Like it's, I don't know, it's kind of going around, especially since the, the treatment for it has gone to arthroscopic. So the, the amount of time you have to take off has gone way down. So I think a lot more people are getting it. But yeah, uh, anybody out there with a big old lump on their Achilles, probably has a Hagland's deformity. It looks like a little talon on the back of your heel. Gee, and what do they do? They just shave it off. Yeah, so my understanding, and this is probably not quite accurate, but they just go in from the side and basically take a little Dremel and kind of grind it down. And then with me, I'd had it for so long that they also took a little bit of the damaged tendon out and removed the bursa. And I only had it on one side, but I do technically have the same deformity on the left side. It's just not as bad. So... You know, it was kind of a debate as to whether or not I wanted to be off of both legs when one of them wasn't symptomatic. I don't know. There's there's a small chance I may have to come back and get it on the left side at some point in the near future. It hasn't been too much of an issue yet. So yeah, okay. And is the yeah fingers? I got my fingers crossed for you as well, man. So is the problem that it's is it is it because it's constantly rubbing up on the shoe, or it, it's just the and that inflames the Achilles even more? Well, so it's the right. So as you kind of heel heel strike or whenever your heel comes down you also have a little bit of inversion, eversion. And so the Achilles, which is attached there at the bottom of the heel and then kind of attaches to the the muscle, is sort of moving across that bone as the foot inverts and everts. And so you get that bone rubbing across. But yeah, like um, one of the, the hallmarks of people who have this is like, they'll go through 50 different pairs of shoes trying to find the one pair of shoes that isn't going to 
heard it. So like, you know, I have an extensive collection of like <laughs> different sorts of Crocs and uh, and like Birkenstocks and all these kind of open heeled sandals, like different types of shoes. You can't wear leather shoes anymore. You can't wear dress shoes. Like it just, you know, more than 30 minutes in stiff heeled shoes and you're just, yeah, you're just kind of slamming the table because it hurts so bad. Yeah. Oh wow. So, so even still, you're you're super. You have to be super cautious with the shoes that you meant. I thought you were referring to when you were actually going through the injury. But oh, even no, I'm, now, I'm better now. Yeah. Oh thank so God. Can, okay. I, I, I was thinking, mate, that. Like, <laughs> yeah, I can put on a pair of dress shoes. Um, but I still have the collection because you know they don't wear out super quickly. So, um, yeah, I've you spend a lot of time trying to figure out the kind of footwear that's not going to aggravate it. Gee, okay. And what, pretty much since you had that, that surgery and you, what did you say it was the third time you'd been stopped out with the with the Achilles injury before you figured out how to get on top of it? Kind, Yeah, so it was one of those things where, you know, how, kind of how all injuries start, right? As runners, we start out and we're like, okay, this is annoying, but I can train through it. So, you know, I spent like a year where it would be like, It'll be painful for the first 10 minutes or so, right? I get out of bed and it's stiff walking around. Maybe it flares up every once in a while, but I can go to the, you know, the PT or the massage therapist and we can get it to calm down, train through it. Great. Um, but as I was training for the marathon trials in 2016, that buildup going into the trials, it had gotten to the point where pretty much every run from the minute I started to the minute I finished, like it was, I could feel it. Now I could sometimes get it to the point where I could not fully affect my stride but even then I, you knew it was there but then after that I had the track trials so I essentially I trained through it for two seasons where basically every run hurt and by the end of the track trials I was just mentally drained right like you can only push yourself through this sort of extrinsic pain for so long before it just you got to say enough so I made the deal with myself that I wasn't going to put anything on the schedule until I fixed the Achilles so, you know, took extra time off, saw PT, was working with a bunch of different people. So, you know, I got the regular extra stim, doing extra physical therapy, extra exercises, kind of up at the glute, down at the Achilles, all this kind of stuff. Started to come back. It was feeling okay for a while, and then it flared up. So then I went back, and I did a bigger intervention. So I got PRP and um, Shockwave, a couple other things, came back, flared up. And so I guess that was when I started working with Troop. And at that point... You know, there's only so many times I want to try that intervention. It just didn't seem like soft tissue was going to be the way to go. So we started working with doctors here in Boulder. And I was pretty sure that I wanted a surgery. I was like, I don't, I don't want to keep dealing with this kind of thing. I don't like having to do an hour of rehab before just to get out for 30 minutes of running. And so we yeah. made the decision that, yeah, it was going to be surgery. Yeah, okay. Oh, it must be good news that the uh, recovery time from a surgery like that's dropped down a little bit. How, how long does it keep you on the sidelines for or off your feet for initially? So it was, it's about two months of restricted movement. So cast in a boot and then you walk around for a little bit. But after that, you can get back to kind of walking. I think most people are back to some sort of loading within like three months or so. It takes about six months to get to the place where you can really start to actually jog again. Um, and that's going to depend on how aggressive you you want to be and what your pain tolerance is and whether or not you get flare ups. Um, it was probably a year before I really got back to full training, no concerns, no flare-ups, no setbacks. And you look at the other people that had it. Like when Galen dropped out of Chicago, that was, I think, nine months removed from when he'd had the surgery, right? So right, you look at that year-long timeline, he was probably still dealing with some imbalances, right? Because you've been 
two months in a cast, you're going to lose some muscle and you're going to lose some, some tendon mass and all this kind of stuff. So he probably wasn't a hundred percent. And as you saw, like his hip just flared up on him because you get effects all up the chain. And yeah. Gee, is that the one, is it the surgery where you're actually awake and it's a local anesthetic? So you're awake as they do it? No, luckily I was, I was oh, out for that. I thank was, God. Uh, I was awake when I had my PRP, which is basically they take a big old needle oh. and they're imaging it with ultrasound and they go in and just jab it to a bunch of places <laughs> and fill it with fluid. And they were going to give me a local anesthetic. I was like, we can't give you too much local anesthetic because it might inhibit the PRP. So I was like, I might bare knuckle it. Just don't do any anesthetic. I want this thing to work as well as yet. And the doctor looked at me and he's like, I don't think you want to do that. And sure enough, they put it in there and it was, yeah, you could feel the needle kind of scraping the bone a little bit. It was brutal. So oh. they put me out and I am very happy that they did that. Man, there's some horror stories. I mentioned Mottram before with his Achilles injury, and I, I don't think I'm tainting this story. I, I hope I'm not adding a little bit of sugar to it, but with his Achilles surgery, I heard that... Uh, so when he went over to Germany, he was up on the operating table, got the surgery done, and then midway through, because it was a local anesthetic, the doctor said, okay, I can see the problem, blah, blah, and Mottram goes, all right, give us a look at it. I want to see what's been causing the trouble. And I almost started crying when I heard that. So, and I actually, I actually hope it's not a real story because that's just horrendous. And uh, I've got the weakest stomach, man. And I mentioned to you before we hit record that about three months ago, my my wife gave birth to our first little man, and he was stuck in the wrong position, which meant that instead of being able to have a natural birth, she had to have a C-section. And uh, I kept saying to Jesse after a chat with one of my mates who said it was, you know, it's it's pretty easy to watch. It's nothing too serious. I said, oh, you know what? I'm pretty keen to watch it. Like, I'll I'll just do it. And uh, my mate, and I've talked about this a couple of times on the podcast, he's, a, he's such a funny fella. He's super laid back. Nothing seems to phase him. So um, what he said, I think he meant, but he goes, mate, it's just like watching someone make a sandwich. It just happens. And I was like, wow, okay, interesting. <laughs> and we were laughing about it. Anyway, so I said to Jesse, all right, I'm going to watch it. She goes, do me a favor. Just watch one on YouTube first just to make sure you can handle it. I said, okay, no worries. So I went and watched one on YouTube. And about the minute the video went for 20 minutes, and I reckon 18 seconds in, I was done. I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to have to change my mind. Because I'd opened my mouth and said to Jesse I was going to watch it, I couldn't let her know that I'd wussed out now. So thank God I, I had a little subtle word to the, the doctor uh, away from earshot of Jesse at the hospital and just mentioned to make sure that she says that I'm not allowed up the business side of things. So, uh, mate, these I don't know why I ask the questions about these gruesome little surgeries because they always freak me out when I hear the answers to them. <laughs> It's such a runner's approach as well, thinking, all right, you know what, if I can just tough out a little bit of pain with this. What is it? The PN, what was the PRP. name of the PRP? Plasma. So they, they take your blood out, they centrifuge it so you get just the platelets, and that's supposed to be able to bring more growth factors and healing to the area. So they take out your blood and they pack it back in. And so essentially your, your Achilles swells up or wherever they put it in. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's supposed to be good intervention for a lot of different soft tissue, you know, tendon stuff. So... Yeah, essentially, we want to fill all the crevices of your tendon is basically the way he put it. And so he's just squeezing as much fluid as he can into the interstitial spaces of the tendon. You can see it on the, the ultrasound monitor, like little bits of fluid just kind of filling everything in. And it, it feels bizarre. Yeah. Wow, man. And OK, so that was pretty much at the crossover point with you started with Troopy around about the same time that you're getting this treated. And it, well, I was interested because it's it's strange to me that there's there's quite a few Aussie athletes over in the states, but when it comes to Aussie coaches, I don't I don't know of a whole heap of them that are over there. I know Troopy had spent a little bit of time there during his running career, and uh, I knew he was living over there now. But what was the sort of inspiration for you to jump on board with him? Like I know 
from a personal perspective, I was a massive fan of him as an athlete, as I mentioned. But just he always seemed to have a really simple approach to training when I heard him talk about it. Like it was very hard, but when you heard him talk about it, you go, "That sounds that's quite a simple structure." There's nothing too fancy going on from what I can tell, and that, that's pretty appealing to me. But I thought I, would, I just wanted to pick your brain on on what the deciding factor for you was. Yeah. So part of it was that I I was a little bit of a crossroads, and I knew I wanted to, you know obviously with the injury running hadn't been going particularly well. So I was kind of looking at other options in case running didn't work out. And I, so I thought grad school would be a good option. And so I was looking around for places where I could run and go to grad school. Boulder is obviously great for that. Cause we have university of Colorado right here, a bunch of really good training groups are here. And so I had talked to my old teammate from Stanford, Chris Derrick. He mentioned troop was, um, a good guy that was open to taking on new athletes and then looking at kind of the people that troop had been training. Um, he had Laura Thwett who just run really, really well at Chicago in the marathon. Um, he had John Gray who, um, I used to race a bunch. She's a road racer. He like went on this tear for like two years where he was just winning or placing really well in a bunch of road races around the U S and I always thought of him as a, one, a good competitor that I thought I was pretty similar to in level of ability. Um, he had Sean Quigley, who was someone I looked up to. I'd been on um, a, a U.S. team in Scotland with one time, and um, I thought it was a really tough runner, also pretty similar in terms of kind of athletic profile. So he had a really good track record in the marathon and longer road distances with what I wanted to do. And then, you know, I called him up, and <clears throat> we got along really well on the first call. And so I kind of just made the decision. I, I was kind of at a place where I just needed to make a jump and it, it seemed to be a good fit personality wise. And then kind of his, his strengths and his, his track record. So yeah. And then obviously it, it worked out really well and exactly what I thought was going to happen happens. Cause you know, we, I think our philosophies mesh pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. When you talk about your philosophies, you're talking about like your philosophies towards running or your philosophies towards life or what are you referring I mean, to when you, when you say that? Them, really? Yeah. yeah. Um, I think so true. Yeah. I mean, he, and he'll put this on any social media platform or any interview, but it's all about we're we're very time on feet. It's you're going to put in a certain amount of work. The goal is to show up. You know, we don't want to get overcoached. We don't need to get, you know, completely sidetracked trying to reinvent the wheel or going as hard as possible all the time. I think you see certain groups where that's a little bit more the focus and they'll have really good performances and they'll have some performances where they've just been burnt out for a little while. And there's maybe a little bit more variability in performance. Whereas, you know, kind of the philosophy, especially since I've been working with troop has been, we're going to do the same thing, but different, right? We find a winning formula and then we just keep hitting it. And we're going to have this consistency over time. We don't need to knock any one workout out of the park. It's just consistent mileage over time, stay healthy and get the work in. Um, and you know that's kind of what it is so like you look at our our workouts you look at the volume of training we do compared to other marathon groups like you know when i was training for the trials and for chicago i think the most i hit was 107 miles in a week so what's that going to be that's like 160 kilometers or something Mm -hmm. like that somewhere around there which compared to i think other marathon programs you're looking at more that 120 130 mile a week type of thing um you know most of our workouts don't go over four miles of intent like hard volume right our tempos don't tend to go over four miles like our biggest volume one i think is like seven miles worth of work and compared to what i was doing when i was with the hansons out in michigan like it's not unusual for you to have an 18 mile morning with 12 miles of hard volume so you know 
any one of those workouts you got to get amped up for you like you really want to smash this thing and then you got to come back the next day and do you know recovery volume pretty high whereas here with troop it's you know no one workout matters it's four months of we're going to be able to hit each one of these consistently and i think that meshes well with my philosophy and my experience and obviously he's had a lot of success with it with previous athletes yeah, there's, there's definitely something I notice when Aussie athletes make the trip over to the States for college or for just a training stint or for whatever reason that changes with their training. Because we laugh, like there's obviously plenty of athletes in Australia as well who, um, you know, in, in some instances make the mistake of just going for, for volume and going for those really hard efforts and just trying to do a little bit more and just do it more often. And a lot of the time, unless you're just uniquely gifted, you, you see those athletes also break down not too long after they've started that process. But one of the things I noticed when uh, an athlete moves from there, that we always joke, like the typical Aussie program will have like a, a Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday sessions, Monday, Wednesday, Friday jogs of easier runs, and then a Sunday long run. Um, and those, those easier jogs in Australia, for the most part, are usually pretty easy. But when I see an athlete go over to you know a lot of different colleges in the states, they'll come back and you start looking at their Strava times for their Sunday long run. And as you mentioned, some of the times that these people are busting out for you know 15 miles, I think, oh my gosh! Like if I if I had a, held that pace for a race back when I was competing, that would have been the most exciting day for me. <laughs> so it's interesting that you say um, that there is a little bit of a change to that 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 common structure in the states with true because I think it's. It really does seem like a, a bit of an American tradition, from from what I can tell, to to really bust out some hard times in some of those longer runs. It's almost a bragging right in some cases, is it? Uh, I mean, coming from college, yeah, the progressive long run has been a staple of pretty much every program that I've been a part of. So, like, I remember in college, we had a couple guys that, like, yeah, long run day was the day of the week. And it wasn't like a... Uh, I need to hammer you. It was just like, I need to hammer this. And so right, you get just a couple of those guys and all of a sudden you're finishing your, your long run at like five thirty paces. Like I remember in Michigan, I finished runs at like five ten pace, long runs at five ten <laughs> pace when it wasn't prescribed. Like we just got down that fast. Cause that's what it was. Lee. I mean, I still have that tendency a little bit. I like, <laughs> I like my long runs to get a little bit progressive and Lee absolutely hates it. And so it's interesting that you say that's an Australian philosophy because he kind of presents it as um, sort of wisdom gained over years. Because I think Lee went through that same transition you're talking about. Um, you know, a lot of what he preaches to us as athletes is based off of his experience. You know, he ran that first Olympics in Sydney, didn't have a great experience. You know, he, the wheels, he went out real hard and, you know, not entirely through fault of his own, but like he kind of had a pretty poor performance. I, I can't remember what he finished. I think it was in somewhere in the 30s maybe mm -hmm. worse than that and you know that influenced the rest of his career so the next two olympics like he kept trying to erase those ghosts and so he would train harder and longer you know, he's talked about doing like three a days he would get like you know 160 mile weeks like some of the workouts he talks about doing are just bananas and like <laughs> he won't let us do any of them and we shouldn't you know i don't want to do twice up flagstaff or something but like it's based off the fact that he would try and hold on harder and harder to gain more and more fitness. <clears throat> like I did this thing and it works. So if I do more of that thing, it will work even better. And that sort of philosophy just, you know, he never had the Olympics that he wanted to have. And he, he had some good performances in there, but I don't think he had the career that he wanted to. And I think he attributes a lot of that to kind of the philosophy of more is better. Harder is better. 
And I think he thinks had he kind of stayed with the consistency that had been working going into that Sydney Olympics and, you know, when he set the Australian record in the 5K and when he ran his 209, had he kept more of that philosophy, I think he he feels and he's, he's probably right, he would have had maybe a more consistent career. And so, you know, for us, a lot of his training is based off of, you know, mistakes that he made, which is, you know, I think being a good athlete and a coachable athlete is part of like, you know, I don't need to make the same mistakes that other people have made, right? They've already done all of that, which is, you know, a good part of when I was at the Hansons program, I had the benefit of learning from Mike Morgan and a couple other guys who, you know, they had between them like 50 marathons, you know, I don't need to, to like treat the marathon as a new thing. I can just talk to these other people who have already been there and like, they know what it's like to die and they know, you know, a lot of the key mistakes that people make. And so if you can listen to that and learn from that, you save yourself a lot of heartache in the end. Yeah, it's so good. It's always the case. I feel like even in my own life, the biggest inspirations are the people that I gain the most insight from are the people who have stuffed it themselves and they're like, oi, you've got to not do this. <laughs> and if only I'm uh, if only I'm humble enough to listen, it usually bears some pretty good fruit. So no, it's good. I remember years ago just, uh, just hearing Troopy talk about philosophy similar to what you just mentioned then and the one that uh that really stood out to me which stood out even more once i saw the tweet of his program after your um new york uh, sorry your, your american trials marathon last year earlier this year gee it's all a big blur at the moment yeah it's february of this year february 29th of this year gee yeah <clears throat> i was actually thinking about training for a marathon myself and even as a bloke who's been in the scene for so long with a fair amount of confidence on prescribing training up until about 10k to a half marathon, the marathon something of of I ventured into once and I had a horrendous experience. I thought I was just the fittest man in the world. Went out like I was going to run a world record and came home like my grandma walking around the shops. It was a very humbling experience. <laughs> but I saw, uh, I thought, okay, if I'm going to do this second marathon, which I was planning to in February. I just want something that's simple. I want something that's clear. I want something that's consistent. And I saw Troopy put out a tweet after your race saying, what we did with Riley's nothing fancy, but he just kept on doing it. And then he, he gave like your overlay for the for the week of training and then said, you know, 12 weeks out, we did this. Six weeks out, we did this. Four weeks out, we did this. And as I mentioned earlier, it's very simple on paper, but I guess a lot more difficult even to be able to consistently rock up, even even if it is only, you know, a hundred only a hundred miles a week. Um, would you be able to walk us through what that training week looks like for you now and give us a little bit of an overview as to what that actual preparation for the uh, for the American trials race looked like for, for you guys? Yeah. I guess so yeah, if so you can still remember, to, sorry, it's going back to, a bit. It's a marathon training. Well that's the thing, it's it's really easy to memorize because it's it's pretty simple. So um, we do almost no what you consider pace work. So I think you see in a lot of marathon programs, like you want to run this pace. So we're going to do X number of intervals at, you know, Y pace. Um, we do a lot more tempos, a lot of pace change type of stuff. So um, Steve Montaghetti is a, a big inspiration of Lee's and kind of trained him early on in his career. And so we do what was called the the Montaghetti Fartlet, which is, yeah. a, you know, the, yeah, you know, the Montaghetti. Yeah. We love that. So, you know, that's where, you're doing sort of race pace or faster for the, the pickup portion, but then you slow down to tempo pace, not like a rest pace. So that gives more the idea of sort of in-race surging. Um, we do a variation on that, which would be a pyramid fartlek. So, you know, just your basic one, two, three, two, one, two, no, one, two, three, two, one, two, three, two, one, right? Yep. You just go up and down, rest yep. is half of the previous interval, right? 25 minutes worth of work. Um, and so, 
you know, you'll do some sort of tempo. Early on, we have hill workouts, which is, you know, 10 to 12 by 60 second hill repeats. Um, that's kind of our bread and butter. Every once in a while, we'll maybe do something. Early on, we'll have like five by a mile or something like that, where we get progressively faster. And we do it on a road where it's slightly downhill on the way out, slightly uphill on the way back, so you get a little bit of a challenge. And so it's kind of a background noise of that. So we do Tuesday, Friday workout. Um, Monday, Thursday, Saturday are what you call, I guess, just regular distance days, which is 60 minutes in the morning, 35 in the afternoon. Um, all of our stuff is time-based. Um, and it's, it's actually 50 to 60 minutes in the morning. So there's a lot of variation built in as to how long you're going to go a lot of the time. So, you know, if you're feeling like the training's getting on top of you a little bit, you go the shorter number. If you feel good, you go the longer number, which I think is really helpful. We have like a, we call a medium long run. She usually goes 110 minutes on Wednesday and then long, long run, which for most of the marathon is two and a half hours. And so that's kind of the background. And then we spice it up with some key workouts kind of sprinkled throughout. So we have what we call Teller Farm, um, which is a, such a specific route that we do, which is four mile, very hilly tempo. And then you go straight into a 5K. I call it go. I don't know what Lee would call it, but basically just 5K as hard as you can. And it's a Lee 5K, which means it's like 5.2 or something like that. <laughs> it's a Lee four mile tempo, which means it's 4.1 or whatever it is. But basically, it's that's probably the, the one that I gear up most for. It's kind of like the, the benchmark for me. I think if I can hit Teller Farm well, that means I'm in good shape for the marathon. So like, you know, that tempo, I think it, it mirrors the marathon really well because you spend four miles focusing just on rhythm, right? It's all about not conserving energy, but making sure that you're staying within yourself, staying contained, preparing for this hard push to the finish. And that hard push to the finish, that 5K go, is it's uphill. It's, it's not a steep uphill, but it's just this long grind. And you, I've done it alone all the times that I've done the, the one with the 5K burst. And like, there's nowhere to hide from it. It's just how hard can you push yourself for how long? And I think, you know, we don't have those kind of workouts you really have to gear yourself up for very often, but we put them at key points. And then we also have, we call it the marathon simulator. Um, and that's 18 mile progressive long run. You start out at like, I, ha I don't know. I, I'm not gonna be able to convert this to No, don't so worry, don't do worry. I would much rather you um, try and convert it than me. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it starts at like six minute mile pace and then you cut it down 10 to 15 seconds mile pace every three miles. If that makes sense, sorry. Yeah. So you start out at six minute paces and then you get five forty fives, and then the last six miles are all at whatever your goal race pace is. So that's basically the only time we spend at race pace. And then that's when I practice bottles. So you know you take in fluids every three miles. Um, and that's kind of the other big one. And then he tries to put in some sort of I wouldn't even call it a race effort because I so I ran the Phoenix half marathon six weeks out from the trials, and that was. I didn't even race race it. So we, we went in with tired legs and the goal was just run five minute pace for the first 10 miles. And then those last 3.1, it's whatever you got, just go as hard as you can. And that's you know basically what I did, but we did it on tired legs. So the overall time wasn't that impressive. And it was just a real hard freaking grind it is mainly just, you know, again, can you practice some, some fluid intaking? So I, you know, I tried to take cups from the water stations and then, put on your uniform and actually kind of get that, those race day jitters type of thing, mm -hmm. kind of a little bit of a form check. Um, and we did something similar with Chicago 
which is the race that I had before the trials where, you know, it wasn't a half marathon. We went out to the 20K championships over in Connecticut, but similar idea. Just got get kind of one harder racing effort, but most of the time it's just that grind. And, you know, that's about it. And then a, like one three-hour long run. I think initially he planned on two, but then we had this weird thing where we got a bunch of snow here, so we, we moved it away. Um, yeah, that, that three-hour long run I think is the other big component. You know, when you do that, you end up with kind of 28 miles worth of volume, so it's it's longer than marathon distance and that just that amount of time on the legs just do it a couple times to kind of get you used to being on your feet for a marathon amount of time. And, you know, that's about it. Like you spice in those workouts that I just said, and that's basically the trip planning training plan. Yeah, no, that's awesome. With your, with your, you mentioned the the fluid intake and um, just trying to practice that part of the, the race day routine. Uh, are you taking on gels as well? I know Morton's is, is sort of the gel of the moment here. I feel like it's the new Nike right now. I think when I was running over here, at least it was, uh, there was a lot of talk around Endura. Um, I'm not sure if that one's still going, but are there, are there any particular gels that, that you use? I, well, when I did, yeah, actually I've only ever used goo. So, and that's mostly because that's what I used in my first marathon and it worked. And so I don't know. It's cheap. You can find it pretty much everywhere. So sure, it works. Um, in my first two marathons, I both times I finished with um, kind of that sugar stomach, right? You get that kind of like bloated, sloshy feeling, and I attributed that to having too many, to trying to take in too many calories throughout the race. So uh, in both Chicago and um, the trials, I was using SOS, which is essentially zero calories it has like a little bit but it's mostly just this kind of sweet kind of salty really easy on the stomach um but again it was like i think this will work and i used it in my training fluids and it ended up working so i don't think i think people might spend my philosophy is that some people focus a little bit too much attention in trying to like tune that in and i don't think that that is energy particularly well spent you know i think you should give it a try and make sure that it's not like giving you diarrhea in the middle of the race but like you know i don't i didn't like tune in my like when i was going to take my gels i looked at the back of the packet and it said take one five minutes before and then one every 45 minutes during activity and i was like sure they know what they're doing like they're, they're a professional awesome. uh gel brand and that makes sense so sure we're going to do that and then they give out water in the trials every four miles so i guess that's when i'm taking my fluids the only thing I looked up was how much water you can process in a certain amount of time. So it's, you can digest, what is it? Eight ounces of fluid in 15 minutes. So I put eight ounces of fluid in my bottle. Well, a little bit more cause it's going to splash out of you a little bit, but mm-hmm. you know, kept it pretty simple and it worked. I don't have, you know, I don't currently have a, a fluid sponsor or a hydration sponsor, but when they come in, I'll, I'll mess that a little bit and we'll figure out what works in practice. But yeah, I don't think that's a significant component of, what I pay attention to when preparing for a marathon. Yeah, it's so interesting. I've had this conversation with a lot of athletes who have been on the show, and I've definitely noticed a trend. Like, Stewie McSwain is one of the most laid-back blokes you'll ever meet, and everyone in his group who trained... Uh, do you know Stu at all? It's hard to know who knows who, uh, obviously, in the different sides of the running world. I know his name, and I've, I've, like, I've seen him in results. I don't know that I've ever actually met him in person. Yeah, okay. A super chilled out bloke. Um, the most chilled out bloke you'll ever meet. Everyone in his group says the same thing. And it it seems to be a real correlation between the level of athlete 
and I know that there's exceptions to this rule, and I'm happy to be convinced otherwise. But does that sim that simplicity of approach? It seems to reduce so much of the stress that would otherwise come with with race day preparation. Like even myself, man, who was who was at the time two years ago, I was just trying to break three hours for the marathon. I was getting obsessed with like, all right, when do I have my gels? I'm going to practice having it during this run. And it just became annoying. I was like, Tyus, I'm not enjoying it. I hate the fact that I have to try and figure out, you know, how far I've been running, how how I'm feeling, blah, blah, blah. The fact that you just looked at the back of the packet, you ran a 210, came second. Was it second? I keep forgetting if yeah. it was second. Or, yeah, second. Um, mate, I reckon more of us need to follow that philosophy. So it was just a very, very chilled out approach, I guess you would say. Yeah. And then, oh, the other secret ingredient was just came from Troopers. Uh, flat coca-cola for the last fluid bottle so instead of taking fluids you get a you know 15 minutes before the end you're taking coca-cola that i shook up the night before and yeah i think it was actually the free coca-cola they were giving away at the promotional event the night before was the coke i used but yeah you just <laughs> shake it up in the hotel room and then yeah that you get a nice little sweet treat at the very end a little bit of caffeine boost yeah, nice. that, that's awesome, man. So have you got a bit of a reputation just in your day-to-day life of being a fairly relaxed bloke? I get that vibe talking to you, but uh, I'd I'd love to know whether that's something that's just unique to your running or, or whether it crosses over through other aspects. I think so. I, I like to I like <laughs> to think so. Um, yeah, I'm a pretty, I guess, I, I think I have a little bit more of a like an intellectual approach. I like to mm-hmm. kind of plan things out and I like to have a plan. But I also think that, especially when it comes to running, I'm not super rigid in that plan. Uh, you know, I think I'm, I, I like to try and be results-based and sort of evidence-based. So if I say see that something works or if I can't see a reason why something wouldn't work, I'm not going to fight it too much. So, you know, with Lee, like it's – and especially with training, my philosophy is like I've decided to work with a coach, right? you decide to work with a coach, you decide to follow a philosophy. And in my experience is like, I don't need to fight that. You know, I certainly have, you know, my own experiences and I'm pretty good at understanding the way my body works and, and how I'll respond in a given scenario. But my only job is to essentially say, Hey, I think I'm feeling this or I'm tired right now. And like, that's just input for the coach. And then whatever he tells me, just execute. My job is to execute Lee. I, I think sometimes athletes get so in their head about like I need to be doing this or like no I, he's saying this but I, I disagree with that idea that you can sometimes you know, you get your wires crossed and end up you know, getting this sort of inhibitory effect where you know you're trying to do one thing and sometimes you just need to stay the course and so um, I'm pretty hands off I, I like to be told what to do basically it's like just put me in a direction and I will go there and I think that just takes a lot of sort of the mental stress of training out of it I, I don't get super in my head about second guessing where i'm at now it doesn't mean i don't get frustrated certainly it seems like especially with troops training it takes a long time to come around so i think you see a lot of people and this isn't always for the best you see a lot of people like six weeks out and you saw this 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 last with our trial cycle we have um, the houston half marathon which is in early january and that's that's where you go to run fast in the half here in the u.s and you saw just people absolutely crushing times. Well, for the U.S., I I don't think we're particularly good at the half right now, but (laughs) running really, really fast times. But of the people that ran fast at Houston, not a lot of them came back and did particularly well at the trials. But you see a lot of people, they get fast early on. And with Lee, both in Chicago buildup and in the trials buildup, it was like, I feel like crap, I feel like crap, I feel like crap, I feel like crap. And then like a month out, all of a sudden, (laughs) 
just absolutely crushing everything. And it's like it it seems like there's this switch turning as opposed to a lot of people that they kind of get up here and they're just trying to hold on to that level of fitness. And these things are going real great, but like, you know, you can get that little bit of a wobble as you come in towards the end. And it, it's a lot easier to go over the line if you've mm. spent so long close to it, I think. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's um, it's it's sort of a really good point because uh, I'm not sure if you've heard of Aussie Rules Football, but uh, Aussie Rules Football at the moment, it's, they've just started their pre-season training and they get obsessed with with the uh, their first games in not till April next year, but there's a real reputation in the scene to to okay it's October it's November we've got to start training hard and uh, people come to me because I've got a background in football background in running and I have a chat to them they say all right I'm so motivated this season what should I do I'm like all right just practice jogging for a month <laughs> and it's it's pretty much the reason that that you just described because it is it's so hard once you hit a peak just to to maintain that plateau without even dropping down and that's before that's before round one when things start to really get heated up with them and. Uh, yeah, I just I find it interesting because we're such a unique breed, us runners. Where the idea of going harder and doing a little bit more, it seems it seems like the right thing to do because you look at a run, and you go, surely that's going to work. Uh, but the idea of taking the intellectual approach, you know, to to more of a degree, might might save us so much trouble from from time to time. I, I love that, man. I'm hoping people are taking notes on this because I reckon, um, I'm, maybe I'm just biased. I agree with everything that you're saying in terms of just having that that longer, slower approach rather than. I used to have a pastor at a church I went to. He he used to say that which goes hot easily goes cold easily. And it, I used to apply that to my running. It's like, all right, if you're going to peak super quick, there's probably a good chance it's going to be hard to maintain. But um, far out, I guess, horses for courses. But, man, I'm interested to ask as well about, and, and these are a couple of these are cliche questions, but when it comes to the marathon, I know these are questions that, that uh, the listeners of this podcast are, are always asking. So I have to ask someone at your level, when it comes to diet, nutrition, and race day planning in, in that facet, what are you doing to, to prepare? That's something that I've, I've struggled with a little bit. I have never been particularly conscientious in terms of proportions. So I don't get real into the, the, the macros, right? Like, I need this percentage of protein, this percentage of grains. I do think that that's potentially something I could improve on. I certainly have a, a bit of a sweet tooth. And I also, you know, I, if you compare me sort of a cross section of, of runners kind of in my size range, I tend to run a little bit heavier than, than most other people. So I'm certainly one of the bigger athletes out there. And I don't know if that's the reason for my success or potentially something that like I could have even more success on. And I know that that's, that's such a tough question that you don't really want to the, the consequences of getting too far down that road and, and kind of going over the edge, I think are so great that I've been hesitant to play with that a lot. So, you know, going into the trials, I played with a little bit, you know, just sort of monitoring calories and, and trying to make sure that basically my philosophy is if I can stay away from your, your basic bad actors, right? Like your, your box meals, processed foods, you know, keep, really sugary desserts to a minimum, I'm probably going to be at a racing weight that I feel comfortable with. And that's played out so far. So I have a general idea of what works for me as a racing weight, and I'm not going to stray too far from that. Or if I do, like it's going to be in a very controlled manner. Um, but it's, it's mostly just about just try to make sure that the food I'm taking in is pretty quality, pretty whole. I don't do a lot of supplementation. The main thing I do is collagen and that's because my tendons have been so screwed up for so long that i just try to get as much deposition <laughs> as i can yeah um 
and then, you know, making sure that I'm just getting calories in right after workout so that I can start the recovery. But, but other than that, I don't pay a lot of attention to it. Yeah. yeah. And I, I don't know if I'm leaving stuff on the table or not. I, we, the strength coach that I work with, um, has recently started working with a nutritionist. I'm, I'm kind of feeling that out to, to try and see if there's some things I can improve on there. Consistency of avoiding junk food is probably the biggest place where I can improve that and sleep. Yeah, I know. It's so, Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you're not a good sleeper. I, it's, if I'm really on top of myself, I can do a, a good bedtime, but like, it only takes like two days and all of a sudden I'm back to, to bed at midnight type of thing. I just, I really, I don't know. I wouldn't call myself a night owl, but I'm like a late owl. And I know that that's not great, especially when we have workouts at, at 8am and I usually like to have a, a buffer before I start to work out. So yeah, I'm not great at sleep. And for some reason I haven't been able to nap since college. So those are things I'm trying to implement. And I, I think that would help. It didn't end up being a huge issue with the the trials, but I think consistently moving forward, especially as I get older, it's going to be all about sleep and you know making sure that that's on top. Yeah, that's funny. I, I share the same problem with you. I'm such a. It sucks because my favorite times of the day are super late at night when everyone's in bed, and super early in the morning when everyone's in bed. <laughs> and, uh... I'm just ramping up to like get stuff accomplished. It seems like I look at my watch like, oh, it's six o'clock. About time to start working on whatever I need to work on, and. So that means that I end up, you know, continuing to work until like nine o'clock and then it's time for bed. So that's bad habits. Oh man, bad it's funny. I've, I've been, yeah, I've been sucker punched a few times now. Cause as I mentioned, we've just got our three month old boy and I'll go to bed at midnight. And then our rule is usually Jesse, my wife will get up the first time. I'll get up the second time. Just however many times he gets up through the night. Luckily for me, he's usually only been getting up once, which means Jesse cops it, unfortunately. But I don't want to offer to take that first one because I know what's coming. Um, but uh, but the the problem is that means if he wakes up at 3 o'clock, usually he's up again for the day at like 5.30 or 6. So if I'm going to bed at midnight, it's like, all right, I'm going to have to get on top of this. But yeah, it's uh, it's one that I don't really want to get on top of just because I'll, I'll see how long I can grind those grind those late nights out for before I <laughs> just crash and burn man you were you were saying before you're one of the bigger athletes out there is that in terms of weight or in terms of height or a bit of a combination oh yeah weight yeah so i'm five foot eleven i don't know i'm not going to get into numbers i think if there's younger listeners out there that's not the game we want to be playing but yeah. um yeah i i think i i tend to race a little bit heavier than other people and if you, you just sort of look at me i think i just have a bigger geometry so i don't know if you guys know who Krystalinski and uh, yeah, taking camp are both anyway, great runners. Yeah, yeah, both great runners. But like Solinsky was always like he's just a broad-shouldered, bigger guy, and taking camp was like the smaller, skinnier one. Both ran absolutely fantastic. But you know, I'm more on the the Solinsky end of the spectrum than I am the the taking camp. Yeah, I used to always see. He, I remember when he ran twenty six fifty nine, and I saw him come across the finish line, and I thought, mate. I would take that distance running body any day and that time because there's not too many distance runners who can rock a physique like that, go down the beach and be proud to to, to show off what they've got. Oh man, I was talking to um, I was talking to an Aussie marathon runner a couple of weeks ago who used to train with Steve Monaghetti, Sean Crichton, and they were saying that they were in the middle of uh, one of their big four week training blocks. They went down to the beach with their wife and. Uh, they said they were walking back from the water and uh, the wives were just pissing themselves laughing at the sight of these these three or four marathon runners walking along in their little uh, you know their little bathers as though they were really confident they go you guys you look so ridiculous we can see your ribs we can see your chest we can see your elbows poke everything's just ugly they're like hey, we all thought we were looking pretty good <laughs> so uh, that's one bloke I wouldn't invite to the beach with me if I was uh, uh, back in my race day weight 
Um, man, it's been a it's been a weird little uh, year. Obviously, Farah, I don't I don't need to tell you. It's been it's been weird over here as well. Obviously, um, but for for athletes, I've got a, a special vote of sympathy just from a a distance runner's perspective. In the especially in your shoes, getting ready for your would it be your first Olympics? Yeah, yeah. So yep. I I heard that the they're, they're essentially they're still taking the same team when it runs, which is great news. But I guess it's just a matter of finding out when that's going to be. So what's the headspace been like for the for the year, trying to navigate the excitement of you know making your first Olympic team and then going, hang on a second, what you've hit pause on, just yeah. hoping it comes around soon. You know, early on, I went through, I think, what a lot of people went through. So there was, like, that real big high from the trials. Oh, yes, there's, like, you know, I was already planning out with Troop, like, you know, what races are we going to run? Oh, look at all these endorsement opportunities. Like, we're going to be able to go to this race and this race and do this event and speak here. And um, so getting really excited about that. And so, you know, that probably... I was I wasn't in a real hurry to get back to, to training because we knew it was going to be a pretty long block. It was going to be from whenever I started all the way through the trials, so there wasn't a lot of rush to get back. Um, and then COVID hits and we go into lockdown. And you know you could see the signals coming from a while away, mm-hmm. like this thing closed, this thing closed. Olympics probably aren't going to be able to go off. And so I've been, pre- pre- yeah, been preparing for it for a while. And then you know, we actually got the news. USATF was was you know our governing body was pretty clear with us from the beginning that um it, it looked like we were going to preserve our spot so i wasn't too worried about that um but you know it's hard to find motivation when there's absolutely nothing on the corner in the the calendar for pretty much as far as the eye can see and so you know when i was dealing with those you know, couple of years of injury stuff i got pretty good at you know you, i didn't have any races on the calendar and i didn't know when my achilles was going to stop hurting running but it was essentially like okay, we're going to try and run today. And, you know, we're going to run today because running is what you do. And so you can kind of exist in this sort of limbo of I'm going to run because I like to run. And, you know, we don't need to be fit anytime soon, but we're just going to do this as sort of, we're just going to keep the routine. And so it kind of went into that routine mode. I wasn't, you know, super uh, on top of making sure that I was getting to the weight room consistently. And I wasn't super on top of, um, the normal sort of extracurricular prep that I do. Um, but, you know, then we got to the middle of the summer and we started to be able to put on like virtual races and type of thing. And I don't find that particularly motivating, but, you know, it was at least something. And then, you know, eventually sort of as the, the winter progressed, it started to look like, okay, well, we might be able to do some sort of comp- competitive activities. So this last week we were just in, in Michigan for, um, we did a, an Ekaden style race. And then a week later we did a half marathon. And we actually had like we were able to have a good field out. You know, we had I think 30 guys in the race. You know, we had pacers there, so it was able to be a good competitive opportunity. And we knew that was going to happen from a couple months out, so it was actually something to train for. Um, now, you know, we're we're spiking all over the place, so who knows when the next one's going to come up? Um, I think I'm in a good spot where I've had my competitive opportunity, and now you know, we're getting close to the other side of 2020. Once we hit 2021, I think the excitement's really going to start to kick in, and I can really start to visualize. It seems like they've past the point of no return on Tokyo. I think so many people have so much money and sort of hubris invent, invested in the, the Olympics that it's it's going to go off. What exactly it's going to look like when it goes off, I think mm-hmm. it's still a little bit up in the air depending on what happens with vaccines and you know how people get their numbers down. But it looks like it's going to go off. So I can already start to, to visualize that really you know, far off spot. It's, it's kind of rolling with the punches right now. So 
as it stands right now, I should be running a 10K at the end of or at the beginning of December um, over in San Diego. Though, you know, we just reinstituted stay at home order. Not, we're pretty close to stay at home orders here in Boulder. I imagine California is going to do the same thing. So who knows if that race is going to be able to go off. Um, and then between now and then, it's like we just got to get. It doesn't really matter if we're training for something, but we got to be training. So sure. I'm take a break in December. Um, I've been dealing with some hamstring stuff, make sure that's taken care of so that by the time we hit January, we're ready to, to essentially go pretty much uninterrupted through to, to August of next year. And I think I'm in a pretty good headspace for, for that kind of grind, right? I, I have that goal in mind. And that's, I think, when I perform best is when I have like a concrete end goal in mind. And so it, I'm okay with kind of mixing around the pieces of, of what goes into preparing for that thing, so long as I know what the the end objective is and that's been the hardest part about this summer was like the the target kept shifting it's like well we might be able to train for this or we might be able to train for that and it's hard to stay motivated when you're 50 percent sure that it's it's going to go away so you know i like to have something to peak for and we're getting close to the point where the olympics is going to be the thing to peak for and that's that's kind of where I'm, I'm at it's get to 2021 yeah yeah man i uh I think I said just before, but it's definitely been people in your situation where I've just I've had my fingers crossed. I was so happy for you when I found out that they were taking that that one Olympic team uh, or that same Olympic team. It's a it's just a weight off your shoulder. You don't have to think about oh can I like do I have to try and qualify again? Am I going to get my training right again? Is you know what's going to happen? It's like all right, I've got my spot secured. So uh, I can definitely relate with that. I feel like I'm pretty similar when it comes to just having an end goal in mind. Um, so you said you had that half marathon fairly recently that you trained for. How did how did that one go? Uh, it wasn't quite what I wanted. So I ended up running 102.30, which was a PR for me. Um, you know, my PR was from 2014. So I, I felt pretty confident I was going to do that. I didn't I didn't quite have the legs towards the end that I wanted to. I ended up sixth overall. Um, so it wasn't quite what I wanted out of the weekend. I, I thought going in that I was in a little bit better shape than that. Um, but it was a... It was a challenging course, so it was in. Uh, it's where the Hansons do a lot of their workouts in Michigan. It's a pretty hilly course. It was a windy day, so I think I ran pretty tough. I didn't leave a whole lot out on the course, and it was just good to get a race against that many good guys again. Like getting a race you can actually get excited about, where there's you know there's people there towards the end. Like it's good competitors you can actually travel to somewhere. You know, because up to this point it's all been we go down to local track and there's like five guys on the track because that's the only people that are allowed there and you know we've actually had some decent local races but we're at altitude and it's just you know for me it's a little bit harder to get excited when like i'm hanging out at my house eating cereal and then like kind of jogging to the track to it feels like an all-comers meet which you know Mm. is fun in itself but it doesn't quite get you the same adrenaline bump so you know it, it scratched that competitive itch which was great and i got a pr out of it which is also great you know those i finished 2020 with uh, a PR in the marathon and a PR in the half, and you know that's that's nothing to sneeze at. And yeah. you know, who knows? I might end up with a, a PR in the ten. So I haven't ended. I haven't run a ten since 2016. So this track race is going to be interesting. What uh, what's your PR at the moment? 27.59. Oh, so that's from very nice. 27, from 2015. Yeah. Yeah, bloody hell, man! That's exciting. Is that one that you would like to run at the Olympics as well? Or actually, how does it work with a marathon and a another event? It's it's. I know it's being done, but I'm not sure how often that happens anymore. Yeah, it's tough. So Galen did it, and he, I think, what did he end up like? I think sixth in the 10, and then came back and got second in the marathon. So it's, 
completely doable, we're pretty darn good in the 10. So it would be mm. a one of it would be an enormous upset for me to make that team, assuming we even made the decision to go to the trials and qualify. So for us, our Olympic trials, I think they're currently scheduled for the they start at the end of June and go through the beginning of July. And then you think about getting being able to run a track race fast enough to make the team, which you know, given our the, the talent here in the U.S., you probably got to be ready to run sort of low 27s. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not the race actually goes, that is a different matter. But like, you know, if it doesn't, that means you're competing against a bunch of guys that you know, are going to be able to close in 53, 54. Um, so, you know, being able to do that in July and then come back for a marathon at the end of the month, like, I don't think that that suits my skill set mm-hmm. particularly well. You know, I have never been known as a particularly quick guy. So, I mean, I think by general standards, I'm, I'm pretty good with a, a kick. And I think for marathon standards, I might be a little bit better. I, I hold till the end. But, like, you know, in terms of people who are good at track, like, <laughs> if we're together with, with 400 to go, most people in that race are not going to be afraid of what I'm about to do. You know, like, yeah, I'm not going to be intimidating anything with a <laughs> – with finishing at a fifty-nine, you know. So you won't be you won't be lining up for any eight hundred meter races anytime soon. I hope not. It's, <laughs> it's not particularly pretty, and I. It's not through any uh, lack of trying on my part. It just you know there's a certain gear. Some people have it, and some people don't. And unfortunately, I I've kind of come around to the idea that I just I just don't. Yeah, actually, I think I saw this this race that you're referring to on Litron the other day. I sort of just popped on for five minutes. And was scrolling through. Did Galen Rubb run that one? Because I reckon they had one of their main quotes about yeah, some so half marathon that was happening. Own, it was just him and uh, I'm forgetting the name. The the Japanese guy that's part of I can't um, remember either. I guess it's not Oregon Project anymore. I'm blanking on his name, but anyways, mm-hmm. just oh Suguru Osaka, I think. Okay. Oh crap! You might need to bleep. You that could say out, anything. You I could say any name right now because I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's just him and one of his training partners, and then I yeah. think one person. I think Craig Angles like paced him through part of the way. Um, but yeah, he ended up running one hour flat, like fifteen, like a really good time solo. But it was basically just two guys out in Eugene, mm. um, and so we were, I think, three or four days before that. Yeah, no, nah, nice man. Uh, what are you What are you doing in terms of strength work? I know you you said that that was something that you you sort of let slip at some stages, but are you are you in the gym now? I can't quite see your your torso, so I can see one bicep, which looks pretty impressive. But that's all I can. <laughs> that's all I can see. So what are well, you yeah, doing? Actually, in the... I have, it's funny you can see it because I, I have them for the first time in my career. So <laughs> you know, in college, we didn't really do a lot of strength work, and Michigan didn't do any strength work. Um, and I I think is the other component that Lee has been really conscientious about adding in. So, um, you know, we work, uh, with a guy, Kevin Permis, Kevin Permis, Kevin Purvis, KP performance. So, um, he's based here locally in Boulder. Uh, so we do in-person weight training, which has been a little bit iffy with COVID, but like we've been able to do outdoor stuff and find workarounds. Um, so we do two days a week of a pretty good heavy lifting. So it's, it's hour long sessions. You know, we do lots of deadlift, hip thrusts we you know we do full body good heavy powerlifting type of stuff so you know, real strength oriented and then he also has kind of a, a week-long program so we mix in a good amount of mobility a couple times a week where it's just kind of going through range of motion a little bit more kind of core focused stuff and then you know some sort of more static stretching stuff so he's got a whole week-long program kind of tailored to to peak when we're supposed to peak and you know 
his I think that ingredient was something that was missing with me before. And I think it works really well, especially with Lee's training. You know, we pull back. We don't have quite the intensity on the running side. And we kind of mix it up with this, this strength training, which isn't going to put a huge load on, on the joints, but it's still going to give you that extra stimulus. And I think, especially in the, in the hills of, the, of our Olympic trials course, having a real like, powerlifting kind of base to build on I think those things work really well together. So yeah, we're I'm pretty consistent with getting in the gym. I've been out of it because I've had a little bit of a cold this past week, but um, and then we were also in Michigan for a while. But yeah, I stay pretty on top of of being consistent with that. And you know, especially as I get older, um, you know, in college it was run out of bed five minutes before practice, and that would work out fine. And I can't do that anymore. So the mobility aspect, especially, and making sure that like you know, my, my range of motion and everything is, is on point has been, a, I think a really big factor in my return from the injury. And then, um, in my ability to execute when we get to race day. Yeah. What, what kind of stuff are you doing for mobility? Um, I have, uh, I can't remember if it's oh, actually I have kyphosis and lordosis. Essentially I have a bunch of spinal curvature, so I have like pretty poor, um, thoracic mobility in my, in my spine. Um, I also like most runners have just absolutely awful hamstring mobility, hip flexor, pretty much any part, any muscle of mine, <laughs> the range of motion is, is pretty bad. And, yeah. um, and also, you know, a little bit of an imbalance, I think partly from the fact that I, you know, I tried to train through this Achilles stuff for so long. And then also, you know, just sort of the natural imbalances that occur. Um, you know, one leg is slightly longer than the other, all this other kind of stuff. So, um, a lot of it is about trying to get, especially like that kind of, you know, your lower core, um, it's a lot of dy- dynamic mobility stuff. So, you know, lunges through the range of motion. Um, yeah. Upper back kind of mobility type of stuff. So not a lot of static stretching, some of it lightly loaded. I don't know. I, I could go through like the actual training plan, but I think that would be a very boring, just listing of exercises. And yeah. <laughs> no, awesome, man. Awesome. Well, I know it's, uh, it's actually it's six o'clock over your time now so your your day is just getting started by the sound of things so once we once we finish this one up what's the what's the plans for this evening <laughs> i have to write a uh, a two-page uh summary for for class so i'm currently getting my master's in mechanical engineering so this is for um i have to summarize a paper for my mechanics of human movement class so i read the paper this morning and now i gotta go tell people what they sell me <laughs> perfect man well, dude, I'll uh, I'll let you go. Thanks so much for for coming on. Thanks also for being so flexible with with changing the time. I'd love to I'd love to touch base with you maybe uh, in a few months once we get closer to this Olympics and uh, you know around the Olympics or after. So if you if you're keen, we'd love to have you back on and uh, and get a little bit of a road to a road to Tokyo thing going on to to hear how your process is going, your, your plans and your training. Yeah, hundred percent. And when we were initially planning out our Tokyo kind of build up. Lee mentioned maybe trying to get over to Australia for at least part of the buildup so we could kind of acclimate to the time zone and, you know, be training in potentially better weather than super hot, humid Tokyo right before the race. So there's a small possibility that if COVID comes down, it could be doing it in person. Who knows? You know, Man, that'd be, that'd be way better. That'd be way <laughs> better. I'll, uh, I'll take you out. And do you drink coffee? Oh, yeah. Oh, beautiful. All it's right. A, we'll go to a few good coffee shops. Yeah, that's a, that's a fact. All right, man. Hey, I'll leave you to it. Thanks again, and uh, I've got my fingers crossed for that podcast in person. Yeah, sounds good. Awesome, man. Guys, thank you so much for listening to the Relax Running Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Hey, if you did, please help spread the word by telling a friend about it or giving us a rating and a review 
on iTunes. It'll just help the message get out there to a few more people. If you did enjoy it, you want more from Relax Running, go to relaxrunning.com slash join. You can jump on board with our membership. That'll give you access to our training programs from the 5K all the way through to the marathon from beginners all the way through to advanced, plus our Experts Corner video library with strength training, mobility training, um, training ideas, uh, just Q&As with members asking Olympians and some of the best coaches from around the world their specific questions. It's uh, it's constantly growing. I'd love to have you on board. So hopefully I'll see you there soon. Otherwise, I'll see you back here next week.